Good evening, brothers and sisters. It is truly a joy, a joy I've had to wrestle with this text, but a joy to open this text with you here tonight. Uh, we're going to be going through the book of Acts, the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, second volume written by Luke. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And this text tonight is truly rich. It includes our great commission that the Lord has sent us on, our great commission to the rest of the world. Uh, it includes one of the most climatic events in all of redemptive history, which is the ascension of our Lord, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ to his heavenly throne. And we as Christians, brothers, we spend a lot of time dwelling on Christ's earthly ministry, his miraculous birth, his perfect life, his miraculous, uh, the miracles he performed, his death on the cross by the atonement, his resurrection from the dead. And I don't think we dwell enough on his heavenly ministry. So tonight we're going to be spending quite a bit of time on his heavenly ministry. At the day of the ascension, a holiday which commemorates the ascension, is celebrated 40 days after Easter Sunday and was a major holiday for most of uh, the the history of the church. Uh, It's still celebrated by some denominations today. A few interesting things about this passage tonight is that the ascension of our Lord isn't recorded in any of the Gospels except by Luke. He is the only writer to record the ascension, and he does it both at the end of his Gospel and at the start of Acts. But Matthew doesn't do it, Mark doesn't do it, John doesn't do it. Only Luke records the actual ascension of our Lord. And I, I hope I'm not putting us in a box when I say this, but your proper response to the ascension of our Lord, the pro- your proper response to this text tonight is actually already recorded for you in the Scriptures. Luke is going to give us a hint as we should walk away tonight after, li- after listening and, and hearing the story of our Lord's ascension. And because here at First Baptist, we are all about exposition of the text, right? Verse by verse. Um, we're going to take this verse by verse, so we got to move quick. And if you feel that you're going to be drinking from a fire hose tonight at high pressure, that's because you will be drinking from a fire hose tonight at high pressure, all right? So we jump in. Let's start with a word of prayer to our Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask that you at this time would empower your feeble servant that you have in me to exposit your word, Lord, that you would open all our hearts uh, to the truth and the commands, Lord, that we find in this passage, uh, that every detail we would soak up, because every detail is important, Lord, and that you would etch this by the power of your spirit onto our hearts, Lord, that we would see you and your magnificence, and the magnificence of which you bestowed your exalted son, Jesus Christ, and the power that he, that he has today in holding all things together and in interceding for us. So, Lord, we pray that you would remind, keep these truths on to us as we leave here tonight. And I ask for your strength in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, before we get into our actual passage for tonight, which is the book of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, we're actually going to have to backpedal a little bit and start in Luke 24. Like I said, the same author of both, and the ascension is recorded in both. So if you, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 24. We'll start in verse 36. To paint the scene of what's going on, the risen Jesus has now been appearing to his disciples and about 500 witnesses as well over a period of about 40 days. And now here he comes. This is his first initial appearance with the disciples recorded by Luke. Verse 36, 
As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, presumably to see the marks of the nails of his, of his crucifixion. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? Now, before we even jump into that, it's, this phrase here, disbelieved for joy, is interesting. Apparently, it is the Greek equivalent in the first, te- in the first century of the phrase, too good to be true. Uh, basically, it means that they were marveling at the Lord Jesus. They were so happy to see him that as he's pointing to the marks in his hands and trying to give them proof as to how to testify, himself, uh, testify of him in the world, they're just really not paying attention. They're just so happy to see him. They're busy touching him and holding him and hugging him and everything else that they're actually not, well, uh, they're not paying attention. So it doesn't mean they disbelieved him. It just means they disbelieved for joy. It was too good to be true in their eyes. So he asked for something to eat, verse 42. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now this part is key. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. Now, all throughout the Gospels, we constantly see our Lord trying to convey truth and teach the disciples certain things, and let's just say they just don't get it, right? All too often, they thought that Jesus would be something of a militaristic national uh, leader, someone who would liberate them from the Romans, restore the, uh, the kingdom of uh, Israel, and everything would go on from there. Uh, and yet, here we see something of a turning point because Jesus has opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. They have finally... They see the risen Jesus. They're being trained by him during these 40 days. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here we see or Lord training them, and once again reminding them of the promise of the Father, that they would be clothed from power on a high, for the purpose of which to be his witness. This is about witnessing, witnessing of the Lord. So we now go to our text. We connect it to our text. So our text, Acts 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven and as he went, behold, two men stood in white robes, by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we see the book is addressed to Theophilus. Uh, the only thing we really know about him is that he was a Roman official and a wealthy Christian, it appears, that he probably funded Luke's ministry. And Luke is reminding him that that first book, the Gospel of Luke, was all about what Jesus had done and, and, and taught while he was in his earthly ministry. But now something's going to take place. There's going to be a change. He had given them commands to the Holy Spirit, probably a reference to John 20, when Jesus breathed on the disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. But where we really get into the text is when we get into verse 3. Verse 3, he presented himself alive after his, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So here we get the subject matter, the kingdom of God. He taught them all through the scriptures, taught them all about himself, focusing on the kingdom. The kingdom was the main subject matter that he was going through. And we see that when they ask him this question, right, while, while they get together, they ask him this question, um, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're actually, for the first time, understanding the scriptures properly. They, by, by this question, understand what's about to happen. They, first off, they ask, Lord, will you? They understand that Jesus is the one who will restore the kingdom. Their doubts appear to have gone. They had doubts all throughout the Gospels. Even the, the Gospel of John and Matthew end with saying that they had some doubts. It appears that now they are confident in this, that Jesus will restore the kingdom. He spent 40 days showing them the proofs and, and teaching them about the, the, the kingdom and, and everything else that relates to their mission. And this is important because when we think of the kingdom of Israel, it was only unified under three kings, right? We all know because we've been going through 1 Samuel. King Saul was the first one, 40 years. Uh, King David was the second, 40 years. King Solomon, his son, 40 years. That's about 120 years. And then the kingdom splits into two, the north, Samaria, and the south, Judah. And so Israel is split for about 350 years or so, with the south being conquered by the Babylonians and the north being taken by the Assyrians. And so, of course, we go look all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Jews, the Israelites, longed for a reunification of Israel. And they always longed for it from a nationalist, maybe militaristic perspective. But here, for the first time, something's changed. So they ask him this question, and for this, to understand this, we're going to have to backpedal a little bit to Ezekiel, 37, verses 21 to 24, the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 37. Ezekiel records, Then say to them, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, and on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them, 
and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things, because we know that the northern kingdom and the south, but especially the north, um, had given itself to idolatry, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people. I will be their God. Verse 24, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Now, when Ezekiel recorded this prophecy, King David, the servant David, was long dead. Right? This is a reference to the descendant of David, the messianic king that God had promised that the Messiah would come from his line. This would be the God-man, the, the Messiah. We're going to also jump, also back in Ezekiel, to chapter 34. Verses 24 to 27 are relevant. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, uncleanness, and from all the idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. And be careful to obey my rules. Now we understand this to be the new covenant, right? The inauguration of the new covenant. Where we get our heart of stone removed. We get a heart of flesh. And because we have a heart of flesh, we've had our sin nature removed. Doesn't mean we won't ever sin again. We'll continue to sin. But we have our sinful nature removed. And we're indwelled by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit, which is perfect and good and only does good, would indwell into the people of Israel. And this was important because only then will they be able to be the faithful witnesses they were called to be. The entire calling of Israel was to bring a blessing, the, the, the covenant with Abraham, to bring a blessing to all the nations. So we see that unification of Israel is very important. It, it, it's the first step of this process. So then we come to our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Get back to our text and we look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So we see that Jesus has flat out rejected any sort of uh, timeline. Okay, we're not, we're not giving you a timeline. You're on a need-to-know basis with that, and you don't need to know. Okay, one of the reasons why is probably he wanted to save them from being distracted from their mission. They're just about to be handed uh, the primary mission of the Bible for God's people. So he didn't want them, pro probably didn't want them distracted. Doesn't give them that. Lord's pretty blunt with his answer. But in order to get the meat of his answer, we got to skip to the next, not skip, we just go to the next verse, right? And here, um, we're going to see that the, the Spirit is going to empower their mission. If you're following any kind of, if you want to follow an out outline, the, the three-point outline for tonight would simply be, simple as can be, the proclamation of the kingdom, that's what we just went over, the powerful mission of the Holy Spirit, where we're about to start, and we'll end with the preeminence of the priest king, the preeminence of the priest king. Point two, the powerful mission of the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Jesus is just resoundingly 
answered their question. Their question, would you restore the kingdom to Israel? The answer, yes. Yes. You're going to be first in Jerusalem. You'll take the message all to Judea. And you'll take the message to Samaria. You'll take the message to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the faithful remnant of Israel, the faithful remnant of Israel from both those kingdoms would be united into one new covenant people of God. And from there, they would do what? They would be his witnesses to the end of the earth. They would fulfill that covenant promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. Now, there are three, the interesting thing about his response is that there are three allusions in it, three allusions to Isaiah that he uses. The first, uh, the power of the, the Holy Spirit that he talks about, Isaiah 44, 3, 5, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And himself, and name himself by the name of Israel. So God will pour himself out. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God's spirit would be poured out onto his people. And they would have a blessing that would never, ever go away. This is permanent. This is what's going to happen from now on. And we see the effects of it. The language here used is sort of Edenic language, almost going back to the Garden of Eden. Right? We see this example. They'll spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Willow, a, a, a branch by the flowing streams. Right? It's a sign of fertility, of, of richness. That's what the God's people are going to be because they're going to get his spirit. When we want to look at the next element here, uh, we can look at Isaiah 43, 12. Once again, I'm rapid firing this because uh, you're drinking from a fire hose. Um, uh, 43, 12 to 13. I declared and saved and proclaimed. I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God... Also, thenceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? So we see here that God is commissioning them as his witnesses. This is the primary mission that we're going to be discussing tonight, to witness God, to be a witness of the Lord. Isaiah 49, 6 is the last allusion we're going to deal with. It deals with the last part of what Jesus answered them with. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you all as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That my salvation shall reach to the end of the earth. They were, going, they were finally going to be this faithful remnant of Israel, this unified kingdom, not politically, but spiritually, they would finally be faithful witnesses that would carry the message of God all the way to the end of the earth. And so we see already in the beginning of Acts that this book is going to be real heavy on fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies uh, that God had given his people. So Jesus resoundingly answers the question, 
yes, kingdom's going to be restored. Once again, not politically, uh, but physic- uh, not physically, but, politi- uh, but spiritually. And more importantly, who's going to bring it about? Remember what they asked. Lord, will you, right? They've recognized, and now God, is, and now Jesus has confirmed that not only will there be a unified kingdom, but he is their king. And they finally, their doubts erased, he is their king. Now, there's a really powerful, um, some real powerful imagery in the Bible that I think is going to help us with our point of, of being witnesses, right? This idea of being a witness for God. And for that, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. So this should be very easy for you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is probably the first page of your scripture. Uh, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we see here that in creation, first God had this created mass that was formed, that was without form, void, and covered in darkness. Void, it's empty. Covered in darkness, there's no beauty to it. It's without form. It's without order. It's just a piece of chaos. There's nothing beautiful about it. And God's Spirit is hovering over the waters looking to bring about creation. On the Father's command, through Jesus Christ, whom we know, Colossians 1, was the agent in creation, they would be working together. Creation was a Trinitarian effort to bring about what we have, what we would call creation, a beautiful world, a beautiful and good world. God the Son's role, just to clarify, Colossians 1, 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That line's so important. Through him and for him. After the creation of man and woman, God, now back to Genesis, right? After the creation of God, uh, God makes man and woman, He blesses them, blesses all of his creation, actually, but he blesses them, and he gives them a command, right? What's he tell them? Go forth, right, and be fruitful and multiply. Dominate creation, subdue it, fill it. That's his command, to go out in creation, to fill it, to subdue it, right? Now, when we come here in our text, we're going to just, we got to get to our Great Commission, so we come to our text we're going to look at Matthew 28, 19 to 20. What does Jesus command his disciples at the very end? He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to command, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus in the Great Commission, gives his people, that's us, an order to go out and make disciples throughout all creation. As the Spirit of God, we have that image, was hovering creation, a dark world, empty, nothing beautiful in it. We too have been sent out into a fallen world full of much chaos, much, many horrible things, violence, blasphemy against God, we have been sent out to do a new kind of work, 
Acts is actually the second beginning in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, a converted believer is described by Paul as a new creation. There's a reason why this language comes back. We get sent out essentially to renew creation by the power of the Holy Spirit, by, by the power of our, also our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here that as we do this work, I'm not telling you that it's nice to evangelize. I'm not saying that it, was, uh, it would be a, just a general great thing to do for your neighbor to evangelize. I'm not telling you that you ought to evangelize. I'm telling you that you have to evangelize. It's, it is commanded by our Lord. It, it harkens all the way back to creation. How is Jesus going to bring about life and beauty among people by us bringing his message of life to people? Ephesians, in, in Ephesians, Paul describes the lost as what? Dead in their trespasses. Right? You lead someone to Christ, you bring them back from the dead. You lead someone to Christ, you bring them back from the dead. You bring them out of the clutches of the devil. You bring them out of the clutches of darkness. You bring them into light. You bring them into God's covenant family to be adopted by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here that from the start, the good and beautiful world that God had originally designed, which unfortunately fell in the fall, we see that we are here sent out to bring the good news to renew it. So that begs the question, right? How do we witness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Our application is built right into this, right? How do we witness the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, the Greek word for witness is martus. And not to start off with a little bit of a scary note, but it is where the word martyr comes from, right? Someone who is killed for their beliefs. Someone who is killed for standing up for their beliefs primarily. And so we look, we have to look to the scriptures here. We're given this big command by the Lord to bring about his message. Well, we obviously need his help. We need his power, Look over to, flip over in your Bibles if you wish. We're going to jump in Romans a little bit. But Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You belong to Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. There's no other way around it. You belong to Jesus you have the Holy Spirit. We'll address later, uh, later in our message, because I understand that sometimes, brothers and sisters, we struggle with our assurance. We struggle with, um, with, with that assurance of salvation. We struggle with actually believing we have God and dwelling in us. But if you, have, if you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And the reason why that term is used, the Spirit of Christ, is because what's this Holy Spirit's mission? To conform you to Christ. That's why he calls him the Spirit of Christ. Jesus Christ, in his office as prophet, that he still holds to today in heaven, speaks through the Holy Spirit to your heart to convict you of sin, to help you obey the commands of the Lord. No Christian can ever take credit for doing the good things that we do, correct? We know that the bad things we do are all us, 100%. Right? That cannot be God. All the bad things we do, us. All the good things we do, the Spirit. And so we see here, We've got the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans, once again, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It was first to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that spiritual kingdom, and then onwards. Romans 5.5. 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now we got to take a moment on this one. Right? God's Spirit has been poured into us and we've had God's love poured into us. How do we witness the Lord Jesus Christ to the lost world? It's with love. It's love. The first of the greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? We win over the lost by loving them. And I don't mean approving of everything they do. It means by giving them the truth. Giving them the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving them the gospel. There's nothing more loving you can do for a lost person, for a neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus, than to share the love of Jesus. And love's an important thing to qualify here, right? Because let's face it. You guys all talk about, we all talk about the things we love, right? People who know you, they know what you love because you talk about it. The things we love, we talk about. We ought to be talking about Jesus, right? We love Jesus. We ought to be talking about Jesus. We're commanded to do so. And this year in particular was a great year for that. It might, might, might continue to be even just so. Right? 2020. What did we have in 2020? Let's make, let's make this relevant and practical. We had a health pandemic. We had the stock market crash. We had riots that engulfed many cities. We had a lot of pandemonium last year. A lot of fear. Right? A lot of fear. And one thing that bolsters our message, our message of love, one thing we got to be prepared for, I think is summed up really good by the Apostle Peter this time, 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now we got to tackle this, right? We should always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Now, there are many ways of witnessing the Lord, right? Street preaching, handing out tracts, and those are all good things, right? By all, by absolutely. But here, scriptures are pointing to a different mode here. Living a holy life. Living a holy life and having hope. The fruit of the Spirit belongs to the Spirit and has been given to us if we have the Spirit, right? Love, peace, patience, kindness, Gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. These are all things exhibited by the people of God. Now, it's a process. No one's quite yet arrived, right? Even Apostle Paul said, listen, I haven't quite yet arrived, right? It's a process, but we ought to be growing the fruits of the Spirit, right? Because when we have peace and everybody else has noise and chaos inside of them, well, that's a very powerful witness, is it not? Right? One of the most incredible things I find is when an unbeliever comes to me and asks me to pray for him. It happens all the time at work, especially last year with the riots, right? Max, can you pray for me? Pray for you. But you don't believe in Jesus. Pray for me, bro, right? Why? Because when they look at us and they see that we don't despair, we don't fret the way they do, that we're not fearful of the future we, like they are. We're not fearful of death the way they are. It, it, it wakes them up. They notice something. Wait a second. 
You have hope, and I don't. Don't ever give up one of those moments. If someone comes to you and says, can you pray for me? That's a, oh, that's a, uh, that, that, oh, that, that's handing you a great opportunity there to evangelize, to talk to them about Jesus. Afterwards, you know, tell them you'll pray for them. But afterwards, follow up, right? Hey, can I ask what, what's going on? Like, why, why did you need prayer? Like, I, I want to know more. I want to help you about it. Right? I want to talk about Jesus. And then critically, also important in that verse, is yet do it with gentleness and respect, right? We will encounter many foolish and vain philosophies when we evangelize. Be gentle and be respectful, right? We can't blame the lost for the foolishness they believe. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the gospel. So Peter includes living a holy life as a very powerful witness to the Lord. Even more so, we can look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, in other words, dead, that they may not grieve as others, who, as others do who have no hope. Even in our grieving, we don't grieve as a people without hope because when we grieve for a believer, and that's perfectly fine, there's nothing wrong with, with grieving. He's actually here saying you're, you're going to grieve, right? You love someone and you're not going to see them for a long time and you're going to miss that fellowship, you're going to grieve. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But we don't grieve as people who don't have hope, right? We're not torn by it. Why? Well, because we know that if you're a believer in Christ, you're in heaven. You're in a better place than we are. <laughs> right? you've, you've gone on to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. So when we grieve, even when we grieve, our grieving is a powerful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I... I love this verse in, in, in the Word and the Scriptures. Acts 4.26, this segment here, you can outline it. It's often called the preacher's prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, the reason why this is recorded here by, by Peter is because the apostles were already running into trouble with the, with the Jewish authorities and with the Roman authorities and with violent mobs and everything else. And here he writes a prayer, this verse right here, a prayer for boldness. Boldness. What is boldness? Boldness is when we take a stand and we speak the truth without fear of consequences. Doesn't mean we do it foolishly. Be wise as a serpent. Right? You're being sent out among the wolves. But it does mean that we speak boldly. We're not ashamed of the truth, and we speak it when we get an opportunity to do so, especially in the face of threats and persecution. So we just saw how boldness is granted by the Spirit of God because we have the Holy Spirit, and all our fruits of the Spirit are for us to both serve the Lord and, and serve our, our neighbors, right? Right? And there's nothing more beautiful that we can do than to give someone the gospel, right? One thing we should always remember is that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. That's all it takes. You don't have to get 100 people to repent. You don't need to get 1,000 people to repent. You don't need to get a ridiculous number. You get one. Uno. An. One. There's praise in heaven. There's celebration in heaven. Someone's been added to the royal family of God. Now, we're going to go to our third point, the preeminence of the priest king. The preeminence of the priest king. 
Now, we finally have arrived at the section of the ascension, finally. And we're going to talk about two offices in particular. Now, Jesus, we understand him to have what we call a threefold office. Serves as both king, priest, and prophet. Um, But we're going to focus on priest and king. We'll see why. It's important for us to remember that Jesus' earthly ministry was only three years old. He only was on, he only ministered for about three years. His entire area of ministry, span of ministry, covered a few square miles, a very small area, especially in comparison to the rest of the world. It's Jesus' heavenly ministry that is going on to the end of the earth, carried on by us. So we go back to our text, Acts 1. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, it's interesting that when it comes to our Lord's ascension, we don't get chariots of fire and horses of fire bursting through the skies, a whirlwind that carries them up in spectacular fashion, right? And, I mean, the prophet Elijah got it, but Jesus didn't get it. Jesus gets a relatively humble ascension, right? And there's an important reason for this, that, that, that Jesus gets a very humble ascension. But I want us to remember what, what, I, what we just covered just a few moments ago. This event is climatic. This is the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the beginning of him handing over his ministry to us. This is the end of his humiliation. He is now exalted. He was exalted when when he was raised up from the dead. But his ascension, when he goes to sit down at the right hand of the Father, if heaven would rejoice over one sinner being saved, or one sinner repented, can you imagine the celebration, the, the praise of the angels as Jesus Christ marched triumphantly into heaven, having accomplished all that the Father had set him out to do. So this is, essentially, is this, these verses here, they cover the greatest celebration of all time. This is really good news. This is good, good for us. When we look at Christ as king, we're going to jump into his offices, Christ as king is his first office. It's important to remember that Christ rules all of creation on our behalf. All things created. Everything. From the forces of darkness, the authorities, the dominions, demons, Satan. All has been put under his rule. He rules it all. Now, we can look at a few different scriptures for this, but we'll start with Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God. Now, he's not sitting because he's relaxing. He's sitting because he's going to have some really important work to do. We look at Psalm 110.1. Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Colossians 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 17 to 20. 
Still Colossians. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile, all, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we see here that Christ is referred to as the firstborn of the dead. Once again, Christ being raised up is the first of this new creation. And all things are under his control. Why? He's the preeminent king. He, is, he might be preeminent. And this leads us to a very practical application and working out of everyone's favorite promise. What's everybody's favorite promise? Right? Romans 8, 28. Everybody's favorite promise. Don't look at me like it's not. Everyone's favorite promise is 8, Romans 8, 28. Not me, but everybody else. Um, and we know that for, these, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, all things work together for our good. That's not because of some random course of cosmic action in the universe. That's not because there's a council deciding on what goes on in your life. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ rules everything. Everything on this earth and in heaven is under the rule of Christ. This is so important for when we remember, especially those things in life that are not, um, how shall one say, um, pleasing, right? When we, when we experience something, a trial, when we experience pain, when we experience something very frustrating, right? It's important to remember that Christ is in control. You're not in some, uh, in some danger of being uh, d- destroyed by a power that you don't know. Your life is being held in Christ's hand. And everything he does is to make you holier, to make you stronger, to make you ready for heaven. He works all things for your good. That means that when you come to church Sunday morning, First Baptist, and you have a hard time finding a parking spot, and you have to drive around for quite a bit, and you're getting frustrated, that too right, was under Christ's control, pointing out how impatient you are. Right? Impatient you are. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Right? So we see that as Christ is king, we have a king. And we have a king who is always listening to us. And that brings us to his second important office, his office of priest. His office of priest. No better book to do that than the book of Hebrews, of course. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, uh, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, right? The same Jesus who controls everything. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, this verse here, uh, 
really can throw things for, 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 uh, for a spin, right? Christ is able to, to sympathize with us because he was in every respect like us. Blood, flesh, and bones. He was a human being. He was a man. And when the scriptures point out that he is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted, this is an incredible uh, uh, an incredible attribute of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. Because God the Father cannot be tempted and never was. James 1. God can't be tempted. And God never was tempted in the Old Testament. It's hard to say that God can't do something. But the, what, the, what the verse here is implying is that God the Son in the Trinity is able to sympathize with us because he was a human. And the other two agents, the other two persons of the Trinity, the Spirit and the Father, were never human. Never. So here, our great high priest understands you better than anybody. You have a God who understands what it's like to be tempted. To be tempted. Temptations lead to sin. Sin leads to death. We have a God who understands us. A God who, as recorded in in Matthew 4, a God who had been tempted himself by the devil at least three times. That's, That's all we have recorded, right? And he beat every single one of them back in full glory and remained sinless. So we have real power with a real God who understands us. And so we should have this confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. We'll end this priesthood on this note. Um, Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, is always, he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Right? Now, intercession, right, it basically means to, uh, it, to intervene uh, on someone's behalf, right? To intervene, to, 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 you know, like I said, to intervene, right? To, inter- to intercede. And Jesus is always interceding on our behalf. Now, I'm not going to bust out the statistics because um, there's various statistics you can use. Um, but if there's one thing we all know about the body of Christ is that we do not pray nearly as long as we should, right? Depending on what study you see, the average church-going evangelical spends anywhere from one to two and a half minutes in prayer every day, right? And yet our Lord Jesus set the example by going to his Father in prayer about everything. And when we look in the scriptures about the things we should pray for, we have a very long list of things we should pray for, right? Paul commands us to pray for the government, right? A prayer that not always pleasant to do, but we, we have to pray for the government, right? The Lord's Prayer, we pray for a daily bread, right? We pray for forgiveness. We have forgiveness guaranteed. We pray for forgiveness. So we are reminded that God forgives us as we forgive those who, uh, we're forgiven, but we are also called to forgive others. We're called to pray for our pastor. We're called to pray for the church. We're called to pray for missions. We're called to pray for each other. We're called to pray for a lot of things, and yet we spend about a minute a day in prayer, and don't tell me you covered all the subjects in a minute, okay? So, Here we see that Christ prays for us and praise God for that, that someone is praying for us even when we slack off and we don't pray. The Scottish theologian Robert Murray McShane, who does some great devotional work, if you've ever looked into some of his books, he has a great quote about this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, 
I wouldn't fear a million enemies. If I, could, if I could hear Jesus, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. I know he's praying for me. Right? I know he's praying for me. I can't hear it, but I know it because it's in Scripture. And so I shouldn't fear anybody, not even a million enemies. And if Jesus is praying for us, understand this. He doesn't pray for you, uh, I, I'll say, in, in some manner which is impersonal. Right? God has brought your name. Jesus has brought your name to God the Father. Your name has been mentioned in heaven. Jesus has brought up every single one of your names, and I am not going through the members directory tonight, but Jesus has brought up every single one of your names to his Father. To his Father. Our Lord knows us and is personal to us. So, to move on from here, before we tackle the last verse, um, it stands to reason that we spread that message tonight. There's someone here tonight, and there probably is, who hasn't given their life to Jesus. If you haven't put your faith in the cross and trusted in our Lord's sacrifice, if you don't follow the Lord, what I just said can be some really bad news. Because Christ is your king, whether you like it or not. Christ is everyone's king. Our king has adopted us into his royal family, so we're good if we believe in Jesus. But for those who don't believe in Jesus, Christ is your worst nightmare. And the good thing about this king is that you don't have to bring tribute like other kings, human kings, would require. This isn't about bringing money to church and getting saved. This isn't anything you can do to get saved. All you have to do is pray to the Lord, submit yourself to him, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and put your trust in Jesus and follow him. And that's all that is required of this good king to be accepted into his, to be adopted, I should say. Adopted, not accepted. Adopted into his royal family. So, and I, and I plead with you only because one day this king will cleanse the kingdom of all the rebels, right? Christ will, on the day of judgment, hand over his kingdom back to the Father temporarily for the day of judgment. And if you're not right with Christ, there is no way you can withstand the wrath and judgment of the Father. So, don't wait for tomorrow. Your life is but a mist. Come to the Lord Jesus. Let tonight be the night of salvation. Um, two quick application points before we go into your proper response for the evening. I haven't forgotten that. First one, be a witness for the Savior King you love. Be a witness for the Savior King you love. Right? Some of us here, we dream of hitting the mission field one day. And there's nothing wrong with that. Praise God. We need people to be missionaries, right? But have you shared the gospel with those right around you? Have you shared the gospel with the unbelievers in your family, with the people you work with, with your physical neighbor, the guy, who, the guy and gal who lives next door, right? Notice that the apostles were called to be witnesses first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. And they stayed there for about 15 years. It was so too long. And God's right, he had to scatter them with the stoning of Stephen, right? So we're called, if, if you dream of the mission for your brother, the time to evangelize is now with the people you know. And when it comes to evangelizing, I, trust me, I don't speak as someone who's arrived, all right? I, uh, 
I can evangelize the guys I work, no problem. We have a very tight crew. It's, it's a good thing. We, 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 they, they're very respectful about it. But when I have to share the gospel with someone I've just met momentarily outside in the outside world, man, I just choke up. I'll, I'll admit it, right? It is hard sometimes for me to speak the gospel. And that not ought be so, right? That not ought be so. So what do we do about that if you're having a hard time with that? Because that kind of fear keeps us from obeying our Lord. And if we love, if we, uh, you know, Christ said, right, in John 14, right, if you love me, you do what? You follow my commandments. So we want to evangelize. So what do we do? We pray. We pray for that boldness in that preacher's prayer, the boldness to speak the gospel into people's lives, and we do it respectfully and with gentleness. And we do it by living a holy life which gives good witness. I'm going to bring up one little um, funny aside uh, by the great Charles Spurgeon, right? The Prince of Preachers, the great Charles Spurgeon, our Baptist forefather there. Uh, he preached thousands of sermons. This was a man who wrote thousands of articles, wrote books, set up a seminary, led one of the biggest churches in, actually the biggest church in England at the time. And yet Charles Spurgeon, who was a preaching expert, no doubt, every time he would take a step as he ascended to the pulpit, he would say in his, in his mind, he would pray, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Every time. Now, part of you might say, well, come on, Charles, it's Trinity 101. Of course you believe in the Holy Spirit. The reason why he had to do that, and the reason why we have to constantly remind ourselves that we believe in the Holy Spirit, is because we are too quick to forget. We are just way too quick to forget the power that the Lord has promised and given us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Way too quick to forget. So, be a faithful witness for the king you love. Pray for boldness. And spread the good news and remind yourself of the power that is within you, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that transformed you from a dead, rotting corpse to life. Application point number two, be confident in Christ's ability to rule the universe, and with that, your circumstances, right? The universe and your circumstances. Now, I know that sometimes in our Christian walks, that's hard, hard to fathom, right? And there's lots of good scriptures about that, about having to Really put your trust in God in tough times. Um, probably the easiest words are the ones that David writes in Psalm 13, right? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? So it can be sometimes hard. But remind yourself that your Savior is at the right hand of the, of the Father. Remind yourself that he's already promised, and he can't go back on those, that all things in your life work to your good. It can be a struggle. Pray, and the second thing you ought to do is find yourself within the church. Brothers and sisters, they can help you bear your burdens. They can help you in your struggles. Now, I'm going to end on this note that I brought up before. What should be our proper response to this text? Well, every time in the Gospels Jesus told the disciples he was leaving, their hearts were filled with sorrow. We see it in John 13, John 14, a couple other places as well. The disciples were always filled with sorrow, and it's understandable. They had lived with Jesus for three years, seen him perform miracles, been taught by Jesus, had a personal relationship with him. Mind you, they didn't always understand it, and they had doubts. But to see Jesus leave was painful. Farewells are painful. Saying goodbye is painful. 
And yet, as painful as that was, Luke records at the end of his gospel, Luke 24, he ends with, and he led them as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus left. This is the ascension. He left earth, but he didn't leave them. And they're overjoyed. They're filled with joy. They're praising God. So what, what, what changed? Right? Well, for one, they, with his ascension, they believed with that training for 40 days, seeing him by many proofs. They believed. They got rid of their doubts. But there's something else the angel said that I think provoked a little part of their memory. The angel had told them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Hint, hint. He goes into heaven as a man, the way they knew him. He comes back from heaven as a man, the way they know him. What did, John, what did Jesus say to them about coming back just the way he had left? John 14, verses 1 to 3, the upper room discourse, right after their hearts are filled with sorrow, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, and here's the best part, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would have I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If it were not so, would I go, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Where I am, you may also, you may be also. When they saw Jesus leave, and they got that promise he's coming back for them, they knew what it meant. They knew that it meant that in part of his heavenly ministry, king and priest and prophet, he was preparing a place for them so that they would spend eternity together. And on that note, brothers and sisters, Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. Father, we thank you that we have Jesus Christ, the King, in control of the whole universe in our lives. Lord, we ask that as we love our King, we ask for the strength to obey him. And we know we need that strength from your spirit. Father, we ask for boldness in preaching the message of the gospel. Lord, we ask that your spirit would convict us of our sin and give us the strength to obey your rules, your commands, so that we would live holy lives. Lord, so that we would witness to you in the manner which you prescribed. Lord, that you would be glorified by us, that our work would be to your glory and magnified by your Spirit's work in us. Lord, I pray that as we depart here that we would remember uh, some of that knowledge given to us by saints of old that we would remind ourselves daily that your son, Christ, sits at your right hand, that he has his enemies under his feet as a footstool, that, Lord, we have, we believe and we have the indwelling of you. We have God inside of us. Lord, that you took away God beside of us to give us God inside of us. Lord, please never let us forget the power that you've given because you are good and great 
We'll pray all these things in the name of our priest king, risen Jesus. Amen.